and welcome to the Horizon Church podcast. Horizon Church is a Christ-centered, word-based and spirit-led church. We are so happy to bring this week's message to you. And on behalf of our pastors, Brad and Ali Bonhomme and the Horizon Church team, we pray it's a blessing to you. Well, big, big welcome to anyone who's new as well, or you've come with a friend just to check out Horizon Church. You've come on a very exciting night. We're kicking off a two-week series on end times. And, uh, you know, I know that uh, for many that are here tonight, you're sort of awaiting tonight's message with bated breath, <laughs> wondering what is about to go down, what are we going to talk about, what is tonight going to look like? And to be honest, that's, that's really common when we're talking about a topic such as this. But here's what I want you to do right now, every single person. I just want you to look at me for a sec and do this. Ready? Take a deep breath. Ah. <sighs> I just want you to relax a little bit. And, you know, as I was praying for tonight and as I was just asking God, you know, God, what is it that you want to share? What is it you want to do in our hearts? You know, I just had this great sense that the Holy Spirit, you know, the Bible describes him as the helper who comes alongside us. You know, I just had this great sense that the Holy Spirit is here to walk with each and every one of us as we discuss these things. You know, in John 16, it actually says that, the spirit of truth, when he comes with the spirit, when it comes, will teach us all truth and will lead us into all truth. And it says he will actually teach us about last things or things that are yet to come. And so the Holy Spirit is actually the one working tonight behind the scenes in our hearts to help us come to a true understanding of this subject. And you know, I'm pretty excited about it. Um, there's a little bit about me. I have been on our team here for ages. <laughs> I was saved in our church when I was 13 years old. Someone asked me just uh, yesterday at our encounter day about it, and I shared with them how I got saved at 13, and then I did the maths, and I was like, that was 22 years ago. And I'm like, wow, I'm coming up to twice my time as a, as a Christian than I was before I was a Christian. So I was saved in our church, discipled in our church, and I became a pastor for the first time here in our church, leading our beautiful youth ministry. Where's the youth at? Make some noise. And I've been on staff, I think, for around 14 years, and I'm so honoured now to be leading our Horizon Leadership College, and we have an amazing group of students, and we work very closely uh, with Alpha Crucis, which is an amazing university college that uh, partners with us. And so I have, I've had the joy of doing a little bit of study uh, in, in theology and in you know, uh, some Bible subjects and leadership as well, and it's been a great joy. And I've got to tell you, I remember starting out that journey a bit trepidatious, a bit nervous about what I might learn or what kind of things are, you know, are to be discussed. But the more I have studied, the more I have looked into the Scriptures, and the more I have tried to faithfully understand what it is God's trying to communicate, the more I've fallen in love with Jesus. The more I've fallen in love with His people, the more I've fallen in love with the lost people that God desires to come home. It's almost like this life and and energy and everything that we need to outwork the purposes of God in our life are the result of leaning into these things. And I want to encourage you, you know, the Bible says that the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. And I really believe that part of what the Holy Spirit wants to do tonight is help bring freedom, even in this area, that we can see Jesus as He truly is and become who He has called us to become. You know, the Apostle Paul, how's this interesting fact? The first letter or the first New Testament book that we have that was ever penned was the, the book of 1 Thessalonians. And it was actually written by Paul to a group of believers about this particular subject. And that was sort of the main purpose of it. And at the end of it, he says this, I love it, in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 18, after talking about the second coming of Jesus, he says, encourage one another with these words. And I was thinking about tonight and I was just praying and saying, God, would you help us encourage each other as we discuss this and as we go there uh, as a church and actually discover what it is your word says. And uh, I really believe that this area of our faith, when properly understood, will be a great source of encouragement and hope to you as a believer. So, um, you know, what does the Bible teach about this? Uh, you know, what, what is actually in this book that I hold in my hand? What does it have to say about end times? Well, this will genuinely be a two-part series in that um, any scholar who has tried to meaningfully, you know, talk about this topic will generally do it in about 
15 to 20 one to two hour lectures <laughs> or they write one of those massive big books, you know, with like really thin pages and tiny writing. And, and the reason it seems that that is the case is because it's, it's, it's difficult to talk about part of it without talking about all of it. And this area of our Christian faith actually permeates everything that we believe and has an impact on everything we believe. And so my challenge as I've been preparing is to ask God, Lord, help me to know what it is that will best help and serve your people with where we're at and with what we're facing and what we want to learn from your word. So is it okay, uh, rather than going for like 20 hours, we're just going to do it over two weeks on a Sunday night and we're just going to jump straight in. Does that sound cool? Fantastic. Fantastic. Pardon me. You know, in theology, right? So theology is the study of God. In theology, this subject of end things is actually called eschatology. So basically it's these two words, Greek words, and esko basically means last, and then ology means to study, so study things uh, that, are, that are the last things, right? So we sort of have this term thrown around in our Christian theology called eschatology, but what it looks at in a little bit more detail are things such as, you know, the, the consummation of history, <laughs> and the completion of God's redemptive purposes in humankind and in his creation. So it is actually difficult to engage this subject without actually first going on a journey of discovering who God is as our creator. And it's actually amazing that as we see this story unfold, what we see happening in the first chapter of Genesis is, is actually referred to in the last chapter of Revelation. And some of what we're going to learn is actually so beautiful in that regard. Um, as Christians, we draw our theology, all theology from Scripture, and in this area, we, we draw it from Scripture as well. Um, but before we can fully engage in you know, opening up those Scriptures, we, we need to do a little bit of work on understanding how to appropriately do that. How do you actually interpret and understand some of the Scriptures that talk about these things? And so, uh, you know... In the two weeks that we have, the way that we're sort of going to approach it is today we'll sort of start the ball rolling and we're going to provide a bit of a framework and put some healthy parameters on how we can engage in these texts. And then next week we're going to put a little bit more like, you know, uh, sort of like flesh on the bones, fill it out a little bit and really actually dive into what some of these um, texts that talk about this era of our faith actually say. So does that sound okay? Yeah. So you've got a plan to come next week and next week if you bring a mate... I promise to do a little bit of a quick summary of what we talk about tonight so they're not lost, you know, out there in the wind. But we're going to have a lot of fun over these next two weeks. But I want to begin with this thought, right? What we believe actually matters. What we believe actually matters. Do you know our deepest beliefs actually determine all of our decisions? Our deepest beliefs decide what we will or won't do. Our deepest beliefs put the direction in, in our life. And you could say that our entire life is, is determined by our beliefs. Um, when we first mentioned that we're doing an end times uh, series, uh, there would have been a whole bunch of different um, responses. You know, some people were so excited. I know that for a fact because I've had people literally come up to me and be like, I'm pumped, so excited, I've been hanging out for this. And I'm like, awesome, how good is that? You know, some people are excited, some people are fearful. If you're honest, you're like, oh, no, no, that's, that's stuff. No, it's not for me. Hey, I'm just, it's a bit beyond me, you know what I'm saying? It's a bit, it's a bit intense, right? Or, you know, other people may be anxious of like, well, I, you know, I don't really know, but I also don't want to know. <laughs> it's like sort of one of those things that I'm just going to like, just pretend I don't know. You know, pretend it's not there. <laughs> or other people, you know, you're just blissfully ignorant. You're just like, oh, mate, what end times? What's that? You know, maybe you're new to faith and you've just been coming along for a little while and this is a whole new concept for you. But unconsciously, our response uh, to this idea of this topic is really a, a picture of our belief system. And our belief system has been impacted by what we've been exposed to on the subject. So for some people here, you've lived through 90s Pentecostalism and end times preaching and teaching isn't an anomaly for you. It was like bread and butter. It was like a weekly occurrence. It was you know, there were maps and there were charts and there were like, you know, drama groups traveling throughout the nation doing performances. And for you, this is like, this is what I grew up on, man. I'm like five, learning about all these end times, 
you know, beliefs and that's just like, that's just like normal for you. You know, I actually read as I was doing my study that there is one pastor in America who has preached every single Sunday night for 19 years out of the book of Revelation. Yeah, how's that for like a one food diet, right? That is, that's, that's full on, right? Um, you know, for others though, you may not have grown up in that, but your only perception and understanding of end times comes from, you know, films or movies about end times. And so you have this imagery around it and it's always red and black, right? And the writing is always white and intense. <laughs> and you can just see right now what I'm talking about, the cover image of those movies. There is this, this understanding of the end of the world, you know, or the idea of that person preaching uh, on a soapbox and declaring the end of the world and fear being the major um, response that people have when they consider it from that perspective. Or, or maybe you're one of those people who sat down one day with a nice cup of tea to do your Horizon Bible reading plan and you're just reading along and then next minute there's dragons and there's beasts and, you know, you're like, what is going on here? I was not expecting that. Where did this come from? And you are like, what do I do with this? There are so many things that have, you know, contributed to how we respond to this area of our faith. Faith. You know, the first challenge we face when we begin to uh, discuss this subject is that when it comes to what we believe, we don't all start at the same place. We're not, we're not a clean slate here where it's like, cool, let's all just begin to build a uh, a correct theology around eschatology and what the Bible actually teaches about it. We all bring who we are and what we have experienced to the table. We, we all see everything through a particular lens. Now, anyone who has done Horizon Leadership College at Christian Worldview subject, come on now, um, you will know about this. We talk about there, this lens that we see the world through. We call it our worldview. And uh, um, to help you with this, I'm going to borrow an illustration from Joel Storer that he uses in this class. And uh, who loves Joel out there? Love him. But we're gonna, I'm just going to borrow one of his illustrations, and I've printed it up with the help of uh, Julian. So the first one is this, right? This idea of worldview. Every single person has a worldview, a way of seeing the world. And so we can see here, the worldview the world that we have is the way that we see what happens around us, what we see uh, in the world around us. Now, the worldview is a way of seeing the world that is informed by our belief system. So what we believe actually determines how we perceive things. This is why two people can look at the same situation and come to different conclusions. This is why two people can be on opposite ends of an argument and cannot understand the other person's perspective because they have a completely different internal belief system that, that, um, that explains their worldview, right? So where does this belief system comes from? come from? And this is something that's important for us to understand because what we believe matters, right? So our belief system, our unique belief system, I might add, because every single person has a slightly different worldview, even if you have grown up in the same family, from the same area, you know, had the same experiences, there will be things that are different between you and someone else. What is it that informs our worldview? Pretty much everything that we have ever experienced in life. So our family and our family upbringing, you know, uh, the culture that we were raised in, which country we were a part of growing up, um, our religious upbringing and the beliefs that we were uh, taught as a child, you know, our education and what it is that we have studied or what level of education we may have been exposed to, um, our socioeconomic situation, uh, you know, media and media is massive. Like, what media are you consuming? You know, how many of us know all about World War II via Hollywood, <laughs> for example? Every movie we've ever watched, we start to unconsciously believe that that's exactly what happened. You know, and so what we see is these, uh, you know, media um, spaces actually starting to shape and determine what we believe as individuals. Um, nowadays, we have social media, which is a whole other level because we can tune in and the algorithm helps us tune in on specific voices that very often echo each other and reinforce our belief system. Things like um, key influences. Who are the people that you look up to? Who are the authors that you read? Who are the podcasts that you listen to? All of these things have an effect on our belief system. 
what you've been exposed to. Maybe for you, you've never traveled outside Australia. You've never been outside New South Wales. Your world understanding from an exposure point of view looks a particular way. Someone else who grew up traveling the world or seeing different cultures has a different exposure. Social trends, you know, things that are happening around us that are just normal now begin to determine why we believe what we believe. You know, even if we just look, if you look at the generation that we're a part of right now, there is a stark difference between young people and their understanding of climate change, for example, and older people and their perspective, because it is something that we are aware of now that was not necessarily in our consciousness or in our discussion as a society previously. Generational trends, you know, a few generations ago, one generation ago, there was no internet. (laughs) A few generations ago, there was no TV. A few generations ago, there was no aeroplanes. Can you see how that affects our worldview? All of a sudden, we can jump on a plane and within 12 hours be in another culture on the other side of the world. That used to take six weeks. Do you understand how all of these things play into our belief system? Traumatic experiences, pain, the opportunities we've been given. And gen- generally, we are oblivious to our worldview. We don't even know we have a worldview. It is just our paradigm through which we see the world. And what happens is we have this worldview that is, is just unconsciously present in our life at all times. But while we may not be conscious of our beliefs, our beliefs actually have a massive impact on our attitude to life and the way that we live. We unconsciously live according to our belief. For example, if you were raised in an in a, in a environment that helped produce a worldview in you that said that the person... Uh, who's in poverty deserves that because in a previous life they were evil and this is repayment for their evil deeds, that person has no problem treating that person disrespectfully or not caring about that person because they feel justified in their decision-making because they deserve that. And so it is unconscionable to them to to treat that person in the way that you and I might uh, treat them with our particular perspective because they have a different worldview or somebody that doesn't believe that there is any accountability for the way we live our life at the end of our life. There's no God. Nah, that doesn't. No, no, you know what? None of it matters. None of it matters. That person will live recklessly, truly not caring or, you know, even um, consciously like thinking about what their actions will actually do to others because there's no accountability, no sense of accountability there. Can you see how different worldviews actually determine our beliefs? So the next question for me is then, well, how does our faith impact our worldview? You know, because we're Christians. So surely we all have the same worldview, right? Wouldn't you think? Well, this is the heart of God that we would come to a common worldview. And which worldview is it? His worldview. But what happens is we all enter into this journey carrying and bringing with us the worldview that we um, begin with, right? So... What happens is our faith actually forces us to examine our worldview against the worldview of God. All Christians, uh, sorry, as Christians, we redefine our belief system in light of Jesus Christ. So what happens is we come to this life-saving faith in Jesus and we have an encounter with a living God. And then we go on a journey of discovery where we get to see God for who He truly is. And as we see Him as He truly is, it begins to affect what we believe begins to affect the way that we see ourselves, begins to affect the way that we see others, begins to affect the way that we see, you know, what we're meant to do with our life. And everything starts to get rearranged around not our perspective alone, but God's perspective. We have a worldview informed by faith in Jesus. So for example, you know, just a quick summary, if you're new to faith, you may have come into our church and you've had this crazy emotional and you know, tangible experience of God, and you were like, I want this. But then what happens is you start to learn about God, and you start to learn that God is eternal, that God is our creator, that God's relational. And you start to go on this journey, and that's exciting. And you read in Genesis chapter 1 about God creating the heavens and the earth and creating mankind, and you see this beautiful picture of what it means, uh, what, what God's intention was, I should say, for creation. And then you read on, and you start to learn that, man, we messed it up. That in our sin and in our error, we actually made decisions that pulled us away from God and this broke God's heart and it wasn't his intention for mankind. And we now begin to see the effects of sin in our own lives and in the lives of uh, the world that we live in. And God begins this redemptive plan, which, which comes to the point of Jesus Christ, God himself coming and actually doing what we couldn't do so that we could experience the presence of God again. 
And we read then all of a sudden about Jesus, God incarnate. And this is what I'm talking about. It's hard to talk about eschatology without going right back all the way through theology. But we learn about the heart and the love of God who was willing to sacrifice himself to restore his children, you and I, back to himself. And then we learn not only that he was willing to do that, but because he is so powerful and because he was able to take on that responsibility completely, he actually overcame death and uh, rose again victorious in the resurrection. And we see Jesus living in this real uh, uh, body post-resurrection ascending to heaven. And then we have this picture of Jesus sending the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, which begins to live with us and in us and empowers us to do the things of God. And we start to see every single Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit start to live a life that is vastly different from the life that they were living before. And then we start to work towards this this, um, culmination of God's redemptive plan in the second coming of of Jesus and the the work of God coming to a place where we actually see God's creation re-restored. The tree of life, which we learn about in Genesis chapter 1, that we were removed from lest we reach out and eat it in our state of sin because of Jesus in this time of restoration. He says anyone who is now righteous through Christ, you can actually reach out and again eat from this tree of life and live forever with God. So we have this scope of the Christian story, right? And if you want to know more about that, talk to me or one of our team later. would love to share some of the details with you. But what does it do to our own personal belief? So our own personal belief starts to be affected because all of a sudden you start to say, I am a child of God. You know what? He actually loves me and thinks that I am worth dying for. Do you know what? He desired relation with me so much that he did everything that was needed for me to come back into relationship with him. Can you see how the, our faith starts to inform our worldview? The more we see God as he truly is, the more our worldview aligns with his and we truly begin to reflect his image. So this great verse in 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplates the Lord glory, Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The clearer we see him, the more we become like him. That's discipleship. This is the journey of the Christian life. So let me ask you this question now. How do we contemplate Christ? How do we more clearly see him? How do we get an understanding of God as he really is? Well, this is why we have Scripture. This is why God has given us Scripture. And while engaging in discussions about end times or you know, things about the culmination of you know, the work of God and the culmination of history and whatnot, it can seem like a pretty daunting task. It's included in Scripture, and it is vital for us having a real understanding of who God actually is. So we have got to understand that we avoid Scripture to our own and to our world's detriment. And one of the biggest challenges in the church forever and definitely today is that there are aspects of our faith which we might feel uncomfortable entering into and so we choose to hold back. But you've got to understand the danger of this. God is God. He, he, he was before you. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? He, he, you don't get to decide who God is. We don't get to choose what God's like. Thank God that he's a good God. Because being God, if he wasn't good, it's just what we got. But God is good. But he is who he is and we don't get to determine who he is. And what happens is if we start to decide I like those books of the Bible. I'm not talking, I don't want to read those books of the Bible. Those books of the Bible freak me out. What we do when we do that is we start to create God, not not as he truly is, but in how we want him to be. These verses back up my God, my idea of God. These books really get behind what I think about God. This is so risky. Like I'm telling you, this is the most foolish thing you could do as a Christian is take on the responsibility of creating God. Let me just digress for a second here. Go back to the fall. 
What happened? There was this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, don't touch it. Don't touch it. Trust me. I'm God. I know good from evil. You are liable to deception. If you try and make yourself the one who decides what's good and what's bad, you will find that it will not go well with you. And it will eventually lead to death. And what did they do? They ate out, they reached out and ate, ate from that tree. It's the same when we go, I want to create God in my image. I want to decide what's right. I want to decide what's wrong. I am the one who will determine what is good and evil. That is us not engaging in faith. That is us actually creating a God that is not God and living in that place that actually was the fall of humanity. We avoid Scripture to our own detriment and to this world's detriment. 2 Timothy 2, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. One of the greatest gifts of the book of Revelation is it reveals to us Jesus in all his glory. We see a victorious Jesus. We see Jesus who uh, is above every other throne, every other king. He's the king of kings, the lord of lords. Is what this sash says. You see him in all of his glory. And if we don't engage in these scriptures because we find them difficult or we find them uh, not easy to understand, we actually miss out on the true picture of who God is. So all of this so far has been the preamble to prepare us to engage with the scriptures and with what the Bible talks about when it comes to end time. So um, Pastor Brad last week, he mentioned that, you know, there's the question out there. And I've got to tell you, even this morning on the door, I had someone come up to me and they didn't know, they haven't been in church for a very long time. And within about 10 seconds of talking to them, they were saying, hey, do you think it's the end times right now? And I was just thinking back to, to how this is actually the reason we're doing this series is because this is something that people are asking us in our media. It's on our, you know, on our YouTube um, suggestions. It's, it's everywhere. And the question that we ask is, is this the end times? What are the signs? Now, I am pleased to tell you <laughs> tonight that the disciples of Jesus literally asked this very same question of him verbatim. Like, I'm talking same words. This, this is what they said. Uh, and I'll, actually, I'll tell you in a second, but this, they, they literally asked the same question that we wanted answered. So I thought, what better place to start when, than with the words of our Lord Jesus himself in response to the question, is this the end times and what are the signs of your coming? Does that sound all right? So there's these two chapters in Matthew, uh, chapter 24, 25, and they're referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And basically, it is uh, a discussion Jesus has with a few of his disciples in private. But let me just give you a little bit of context for this story uh, before we get into the reading of the scripture. And we're going to read pretty much a whole chapter there. So um, get ready for it. But basically, just prior to this, in chapter 21, this is when Jesus enters Jerusalem, the triumphant entry. And he comes in, people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. He is being literally like palm branches put down, worshipped as he enters this city. So that's chapter 21. Then he walks into the temple. And we see Jesus here get very frustrated because the temple was not being used as a place of prayer and worship. Instead, it was being, it was being used as a place of exploitation. And so he gets crazy and he starts flipping tables and he's sending people out and he makes this whip and he's like, get out of here. This isn't how this is meant to happen. So he fires up at all these people who are misunderstanding the purpose of the temple in the nation of Israel. And then he gets challenged by the chief priests and elders. So we're talking in public here, chief priests and elders come up to him and start to challenge him. Now Jesus, man, he is like the real deal, right? He gets publicly challenged by these guys and he decides, well, you know what? I'm going to publicly challenge you right back. And he shares this parable, uh, the parable of the wedding banquet, which is the story where uh, Jesus basically talks about the history of Israel and the, the um, people the chief priests and the elders, and he says to them, hey, we've been sending all these people out to try and get, um, to get you to, to come to this place, but you just keep killing and destroying everyone that is sent. And then he says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get anyone and everyone from any place and every place, and we're going to invite them to this wedding banquet. And he basically talks about how all these people who would never be invited to a wedding banquet would come, would come right? Then after that, 
he starts teaching uh, all those people who basically identify as the scoundrels, the anywhere and everywhere people that are not part of the, um, you know, the religious sort of upper echelons. And he starts teaching them and encouraging them and leaning into them. And then he, he does the seven woes. <laughs> the seven woes are where Jesus basically, woe to you, Pharisees. And he just hammers them one after the other about how you live this pious life, but on the, on the inside you're dead. You know, you look good and you try and make other people do all this stuff. You can't even do it yourself. And he basically calls out their hypocrisy and he literally lays it on them pretty heavy. So if you want some interesting reading in the Bible, read from Matthew chapter 21. And that leads us all the way up to Matthew 24. And he starts this conversation when he leaves the temple, leaves the city and goes up to the Mount of Olives. Um, This is also seen in a couple of the other Gospels, Mark and Luke. So what we're going to do is we're going to read Mark's version because it is a little bit more succinct and you guys can read the longer version in a moment. Does that sound all right? So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 13. We're going to read from verse 1. And this is what it says. It says, As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent building, what a magnificent building. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Matthew explains all this. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The very question we're asking tonight. The disciples are sitting with Jesus privately, and I just want us to imagine right now that that's us, because it is. We're at the feet of Jesus, about to hear his response to this question about what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, Do not be alarmed. Are anyone alarmed lately from all these wars and rumors of wars? Well, there's an encouragement from Jesus right there. Do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Are you starting to see, first of all, Jesus' response, not shying away from the suffering that they're about to encounter? not shying away from the fact that there would be calamities and disasters and things happening around the world that would cause people to ask big questions. But what he is saying to them, he said, in the midst of all this, you need to be on mission. You've got a purpose, which is to witness to the world. You have to take this message to all nations. You have to stand before governors and kings. And when you are put in jail, when you are brought to trial, you don't even have to worry about what you will say because the Holy Spirit will give you words to say Isn't it beautiful that Jesus is locating himself in the midst of this journey with us? Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And a big part of all the literature that points towards end times and teaches us about our eschatology talks about our resilience under suffering and our faithfulness to Jesus through uh, all the challenges that we face. Then it goes on in verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter a house or take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter. Matthew says, pray that it doesn't take place on a Sabbath because they could only run a certain distance on a Sabbath. Goes on to say here, 
Pray that this not take place in winter. Verse 19, because those will be the days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short these days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will accept, uh, will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything in advance. But in those days follow, uh, following that distress, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, we will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Verse 13 says this, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, Keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening, midnight, or when the cock crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. Right? Well, there's so much in this that we can immediately draw encouragement from. And I broke down some of those things that we talked about there. The fact that he's not shying away from the fact that we will go through seasons of suffering and that he has called us into places where he will equip us by his Holy Spirit to be witnesses for the gospel to all nations. Um, If you read the director's cut, the Matthew version, right, you've got two chapters, (laughs) extended edition, right? And so the second chapter, Matthew 25, is actually following on from that same discussion is these three parables. The first parable is the parable of the ten virgins. And some of you may know this, but for those that don't, it's basically a story about uh, these ten people waiting for a bridegroom, and they wait a long time, and they start to fall asleep. And then all of a sudden, while they're sleeping, someone gets up and says, the bridegroom's here, the bridegroom's here, and they get up, and only five of them realise that they have enough oil. And the other five go to get oil. But while they're gone, the bridegroom comes. The five that are there go with him. And the five that are not there miss out. And they, they want the oil of the five bridegrooms that have oil, but they, can't, they don't have enough to share. And so there is this division that we see. The second uh, parable is the parable of the bags of gold. One person gets five. One person gets uh, three. One person gets one. Uh, talents. And basically, the master says, do something with this. I'm going away. I'm giving this to you. And then he leaves. And then he comes back. First one's doubled it. Master's like, well done, faithful servant. Second one doubled it. Well done, faithful servant. The third one took that bag of gold. Sorry, took that one talent uh, and hid it. And he said, I know you're a harsh you know, um, master, and I didn't want to um, do anything where I could lose it, and so I hid it. And he calls him a wicked servant. And, and he, uh, this, this person gets pushed away from his presence. And then the last one is the sheep and the goats. And it talks about these uh, sheep and goats that are in one pen, but one by one they are separated into sheep and goats and the sheep are welcomed into the kingdom of God while the goats are not. And what every single parable does is it teaches us that it is extremely important to live alert, to not live flippantly or to miss out on what God has for us because we are unaware of the fact that this is happening. It's, it, is, it is to live life with the expectation of Jesus' return and be alert, doing what he has assigned you to do. How amazing is this particular verse? And I would suggest as we dive into some of these 
um, these scriptures over these next couple of weeks, that you never forget these words of Jesus, which says, Mark 13, 36, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. You know, just prior to that, he said to them, the master left and gave them each their assigned tasks. So what I want to do as we, you know, we don't have a lot of time left tonight. As I mentioned, we're going to use this as the beginning of a two-week discussion. But what we need to understand is this, right? We must not miss the wood for the trees, so to speak. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to dive into this discussion. We're going to let it shape our understanding of God and His plans and purposes. But let us remember that ultimately, we are led by the Holy Spirit to live our lives focused on what He has assigned each of us to do. You know, it's interesting because Jesus in this passage, when asked that question, is actually, he's actually discouraging speculation and focus his disciples on spirit-led activity. He says, I don't want you to do, get distracted by all these things that are happening around you. Those things have to happen, but I need you to be on mission because I've got a purpose and I've got a plan and this world needs to know this gospel message and I need you to be focused on what I have called you to do. The truth is we can be so distracted in searching for the signs that we are like the man with the one talent. He buried it and did nothing with it. We can spend so much time and energy trying to make sense of all these signs in a way that we can uh, fit into our finite brain that we forget that we're ultimately on this earth to share God's good news with the people around us who are lost and to help the kingdom of God not, not, not be a place that we one day go to, but the kingdom of God come to us. A healthy eschatology actually doesn't distract us, it focuses us. You know, this was, it was Paul's eschatology that informed uh, his charge to Timothy. Get this verse, right? It's amazing. 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. <laughs> How's that for an introduction? Paul's like, literally because I know who Jesus is, and I'm aware that He will come again. And because His kingdom is a kingdom that will have no end, I now give you this charge. Preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministries. You know, what was the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know, this way of living with an awareness and an understanding of God as He truly is, including what He plans to do and His purposes in the end times. We understand that and it informs our passion and our commitment to the call God has over each of our lives. And we don't get distracted, but we live our life with a prayer that says, God, I can see Your Kingdom. Through this part of my faith, my eschatology, I can see that in Revelation 21, when it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, in Revelation 22, when it talks about the new Eden, when I see that, I actually see the Kingdom of God in the form that You intended it to live. And it informs me of how I can see and be an impact in my world today. It becomes our true north. So in many ways, our eschatology becomes our true north. I know where we are going. I know what God's plans and purposes are because He has revealed it to us as believers. And because I am aware of what He plans to do, I am now motivated and I have the direction that I'm called to go. And we understand that we all have a part to play so that all people can experience what God wants, not just some. We're almost there. Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14 says this. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope. (laughs) Throughout Christian history, eschatology has been referred to as the blessed hope or Christian hope, which should be telling. If you don't feel hope when we talk about eschatology as a believer, then maybe you need to uh, look at what you believe about eschatology. 
If you don't have hope when you read about eschatology, you are either somebody who is on the wrong side of salvation and it isn't a hopeful something that you anticipate, something that you look forward to because we read about these parables, the sheep and the goats. You either don't have hope because you're on the wrong side of salvation or you don't have hope because you have a wrong understanding of eschatology. And so we need to go on a journey of seeing this for what it is while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own. Because we see Him, expect Him, contemplate Him. As we contemplate Him, we imitate Him and we are transformed into His image. You know, what do we believe about end times? We believe, and this is the ACC statement of beliefs, we believe in and look forward to the imminent personal return of Jesus Christ to gather His people to Himself and to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. This is what we believe. And next week, we're going to dive into some of the scriptures that uh, talk a little bit about that. As well as the overarching message in Jesus' discourse that we read tonight, we also have aspects of this passage that when we first read them, make us raise the old eyebrows. (laughs) What is going on there? So for example, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. Let the reader understand. Hmm. (laughs) Anyone read that and not understand? <laughs> you know, what, what we just experienced in these two chapters of Matthew was a dive into what is called apocalyptic literature. And the Bible and a lot of that era of, you know, between sort of 200 BC and 180, there was a lot of apocalyptic literature even outside that which is part of our Bible. Apocalyptic literature was understood by the people of that day. There was context for it. It made sense to them. So next week, (laughs) we're going to be looking at how to engage and interpret apocalyptic literature in our look at the end times. We're also going to go through some of the scriptures pertaining to this topic. So particularly the book of Revelation, we're looking at some of the ways that people have interpreted that book. And we're going to see Jesus in this dynamic, powerful way revealed in these scriptures like he is not revealed anywhere else. So next week, get ready for some apocalyptic literature. Are you excited? <laughs> well, what I was thinking at the very end here, you know, we are halfway through a discussion and so some of you guys will have to sit with some tension for a week. It's not a bad thing to experience, but I really would encourage you to come back next week. What I want to do just now is to take a moment to just, again, breathe out. <laughs> And actually, again, just maybe just focus our eyes and our hearts on Jesus. Can you just close your eyes wherever you're at? And why don't in your heart you just look to Jesus? Jesus. You know, there was prophecy about Jesus' first coming. And the Jewish people the people of Israel had a picture of what it was going to look like. But we have the beauty of hindsight to see that yes, Jesus was to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, but He wasn't to have a reign like David's. No, His reign would be so much greater. And who would have expected Him to come? Like a baby? (laughs) But in hindsight, we see God's glorious plan at work, not just for the salvation of the Jews, but for the salvation of all people. You know, when it comes to the second coming of Christ, we have hope and a hope-filled expectation that He is coming. And because we know who He is, we have faith that what will take place through this aspect of our faith is going to be beautiful and powerful and in line with the nature and the heart of God. And we are going to visit the Scriptures that help us see Jesus as He truly is which is not who we want Him to be, not aligned to our own belief system or value system, but is unique from what we believe. And I thank you, Jesus, that tonight 
we are choosing to say yes to the journey of discovering you for who you truly are. No matter what it looks like, no matter what we may come across, we choose to have faith and lean into this process. You know, if you're in this room right now and you are not a person of faith, and we're talking about some fantastic things tonight, we're talking about things that are quite remarkable and a man called Jesus who is making claims that he is God. You're sitting next to somebody who has experienced the reality of those claims. And you tonight can have your own experience of God by simply in your heart saying yes and opening up your heart to become a believer, to receive Jesus as he truly is. Not as you think He is, not as someone told you He is, but as, you, as He truly is. It's a journey of faith and it begins by, by opening up your heart and praying a simple prayer to invite Jesus in. And so with every eye closed right now, I just want to pray a really simple prayer for anyone in the room who is distant from God. And I want to pray this prayer and I want, to, I want you to pray it after me. And all of us are going to pray along so that you're not alone. And we're going to do that now. So let's, let's pray this prayer together. Dear Jesus, I know that you love me and that you gave your life up for me. Tonight, I choose to give my life back to you. I receive you as my Lord and Saviour and I look forward to discovering who you truly are. From this day forward, walk with me, talk to me and live in me in Jesus' name. So every eyes closed. If if you're in the room and that was you, and you know, I believe that the Holy Spirit has been at work in people's hearts right now. And so I've got faith that people have have opened up their, their hearts to Jesus. If that's you, wherever you are, I just want to pray for you. I just want to know who you are and pray for you. And I've just asked two people to help me see everyone else has their eyes closed. So I know who to pray for. Could you be brave and just be like, today? I really felt I needed to make a decision to open up my heart to Jesus. If that's you, just give us a quick wave. Let me, let me pray for you. I need Jesus. Yep, powerful man. Who else? And you know, tonight as we've been talking, yeah, up there as well. So good, bro. We've been talking about, and you just, your, your spirit identifies with what we're talking about. You know that what we're talking about here has substance, that this Jesus who talks so strongly and clearly in this scripture we read, is God and He is calling you home. If He is calling you home right now and you are not in relationship with Him, can you just, come on, boldly step out in faith. Give us a quick wave. Who else is like at that place? Amazing. Well, God, I just thank you so much for these amazing people who tonight have decided to put their trust in you and that they are receiving you as their Lord and Saviour. And I pray from this day forward that you would be with them God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would guide them and lead them and that you bring them to a place of understanding and transformation in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Fantastic. Thanks for listening to this week's message. For more info about Horizon Church, please visit our website at hz.church. Have a fantastic day and we hope to see you again soon.